So uh, in each of the passages that we've been looking at in this series, they've all followed uh, a very similar pattern. A question gets posed to Jesus. Jesus provides an answer that was relevant to an issue in the first century. And then we've taken Jesus' answer and looked at how it applies to us in the 21st century. Uh, what I think is cool about this morning, though, is that the conversation that Jesus has with the question asker today that's relevant in the first century, I think is even more relevant to us in the 21st century and isn't going to require any extra application or translation at all. So I'm pretty excited about this morning's passage. Turn with me if you have a Bible or a Bible app in uh, Matthew chapter 22. And we're going to begin in verse 34 where it says this. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now, uh, we've looked at two of these interactions so far. Uh, one was with the disciples of the Pharisees. That was the first group, basically the students of these teachers or leaders of Jewish religion in that day. The second one was uh, with this religious group called the Sadducees, who were a legitimate spiritual leadership group, but kind of the, the political equivalent to our Green Party. They were kind of a little more fringe than the Pharisees. Now we're looking at the Pharisees approaching Jesus directly. And these were kind of the, the big dogs in uh, religious and, and political uh, circles in Jesus' day. And so you can get the sense that Matthew is sort of building, escalating intensity in each of these interactions. It, it, you know, in boxing language, he's, he's recording these different bouts, building up for what I think is, is the main event here. And on top of that, um, the Pharisees bring kind of one of their biggest dog leaders to actually ask Jesus the question in this section. In verse 35, it says, one of the Pharisees, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, a bit of context here. Uh, the Jews uh, had a, a set of scriptures that we refer to, by and large, as our Old Testament. And in a good portion of them, uh, they referred to a section of that as the law, meaning the, the sort of rules and commands that had been given to them by God. There were 613 Jewish laws contained within what they referred to as the law. And so this question posed to Jesus was, which of the 613 laws mattered the most? And the person asking the question was an expert in the law. And so they wanted to know, you know, from Jesus, which is the more imp most important. The key phrase, though, if you'll notice, is the word tested him. Tested him. In the original language, the translation actually refers more to the idea of trying to trap Jesus. This expert in religious law was trying to trap Jesus with this question of the 613 laws which mattered most. Now, for you and I today to get the full punch of this passage, we have to be able to answer one, I think, maybe difficult, but seemingly simple question. How was Jesus being trapped by this question? What was the trap that this religious leader, this expert in the law, was posing when he asked which of these commandments is the greatest? See, some study will reveal that uh, of these 613 laws, the, the question of which is the most important was a commonly discussed issue in Jesus' day, in, in his time. I mean, think about it. If you had 613 rules to keep, you'd certainly want to know which are the most important rules and which are the, like, you know, driving 110 on the highway kind of, you can get away with it kind of rules. 
And uh, so there were all kinds of conversations and I'm sure many heated debates about this topic. And uh, was able to discover that uh, there were actually a few theories, some schools of thought, and I'm sure I'm not going to present all of them, but I, I can present a few today of some schools of thought of, you know, which of these 613 laws mattered the most. One school of thought actually categorized them into great and small or heavy and light, kind of the really important laws and the maybe, you know, not as important, the majors and the minors. Um, there was another school of thought that believed that the 11 principles contained in Psalm 15 adequately kind of encapsulated the whole of those 613 laws. Some other school of thought believed that the six ideas contained in Isaiah 33 captured it better. There was another school of thought that thought that the, the, the three values in Micah 6 verse 8 summarized it, you know, the absolute best. Another school of thought believed that the, the two values in Isaiah 56 verse 1 did it the best. You can see where this is going. Some people believe that Amos 5 verse 4 articulated it the best. Habakkuk 2.46 was another school of thought. Some believe that Proverbs 3 verse 6 encapsulated the entire law the best. The interesting thing, if you're unfamiliar with any of those verses, um, is that none of those sections of the Jewish Old Testament were actually part of the law. They were actually part of a different section known as the prophets, the people who spoke to God's people you know, on behalf of God, leveraging the law. And so they were quoting sections of biblical prophets to kind of summarize you know, what they believed were you know, the most important virtues or values contained in the law. And whether you're familiar with any of this or not doesn't really matter. What, what I want you to appreciate is simply the fact that in Jesus' day, this was commonly discussed and there were different schools of thought. So with that, what do you suppose the test was that this religious leader was posing to Jesus? What was the trap? See, the expert in religious law was not looking for Jesus to teach him much, even though he referred to Jesus as teacher. He was being kind of facetious or sarcastic. He wasn't looking to learn from Jesus. He already perceived himself to be an expert in religious law. He was trying to, to trap Jesus, not learn from Jesus. And the trap was to find which of those schools of thought Jesus would answer with. Because if Jesus would answer the question of which commandments were most important, which of the 613 laws were most important, maybe he would present one of those schools of thought. And if he did, then the Pharisees had got him. Because if Jesus sided with one of those schools of thought, then obviously he was not siding with other ones. And if he answered according to one school of thought, then he would be alienating himself with all the others. With such a popularly discussed issue, such a hotly debated topic, if they could get Jesus to weigh in, then they could get Jesus to polarize himself from almost all of his hearers. That was the trap. The trap wasn't to learn from Jesus. The trap was to alienate Jesus and to divide him from all of his followers. That's why it's shocking that Jesus actually answers their questions straight up. And more than that, he answers quoting the law, not just the prophets. Look at what it says in verse 37. It says, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This, this is the first and greatest commandment. There's no debate in Jesus' mind. He answers quickly and decisively and quotes from the law, Deuteronomy 6 verse 5. 
Now, to understand a bit of context here, um, this was one of those rules that every Jew would have been more than commonly familiar with. I'll show you why. Look at what it says in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 5. It says there, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. See, Jesus didn't just pick any old law to elevate as what he called the greatest commandment. He picked one that had commonality across all of the camps. All of the camps, no matter what they believed were the most important laws, they would have gone home and each of them would have had Deuteronomy, Deut Deuteronomy chapter 6 written on their door frames. All of them would have kind of, you know, had it pasted somewhere and wrapped around their wrists and, you know, as a bit of a memory tool because of the command that God had given to really, you know, kind of value and, and, and meditate to, to really let that commandment stick. That was the kind of command that everyone could agree on was, that was important. And so in that sense, Jesus was providing a commandment, not just to love God and give God everything you've got, but a commandment that everybody could track with. Similarly, he does the same thing in verse 39. He says, and, he's not done, he says, and the second greatest commandment is like it, meaning of equal importance, where he says there, love your neighbor as yourself. Once again, Jesus is referring to an actual law within these 613 laws, Leviticus 19.18. The further uh, expansion of it says this. It says, do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. And so again, this one may not have been as commonly popular as love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But this one was specifically given to the Jews to prevent them from dividing over arguments or fights. From, you know, uh, holding grudges and, you know, writing off your, your neighbor. But instead, caring about them as you would care about yourself. And so, I hope that you can see what Jesus is doing in providing not just these two laws of love, to love God and to love people, but to provide two laws that were common to everyone and that served to bind everyone together. Ultimately, that's what Jesus is doing. And I think the biggest clue is the way that Jesus ends his answer to the Pharisees. He says in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 22 that all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He first of all says all the law, all 613 laws, you know, kind of depend on these two ideas. He says not only that and the prophets, all the 613 laws and all of the prophets, meaning all of the authors and spokespeople representing all of the camps and schools of thought of what the really mo the most important laws were. They all depend on this because he says they all hang on it. The word hang is more literally translated as adhered to, you know, stuck to. It's kind of like glue. It's a term for dependence. And what Jesus is saying through these two elevated, what he calls greatest commandments, to give God everything that you've got and to treat others the way you would normally treat yourself. He's saying that these two can encompass, can bind together, can unify all the other laws and all the other schools of thought 
about the law. So let's slow down a second and make sure we all understand and see what Jesus is doing here. Right? A lot of times when I've heard the passage of the, great, the greatest commandment taught, it goes something like this. You know, an expert in religious rules approaches Jesus about which is the most important religious rule. And Jesus says, love God and love people. And the takeaway is that love matters more than rules. That's not actually what's happening here, gang. What's happening is that religious experts are trying to trap Jesus by getting him to give an answer that will divide him and separate him from his people. And what Jesus does in providing two great commandments to love God and to love people is Jesus actually binds them together. What was intended to test and trap Jesus by creating division, Jesus uses as a way to unify people, to galvanize all of his people to be united together in love. Well, I don't know about you, but you know, when I think about our day and age and the amount of division that exists among followers of Jesus, the division that exists within the Christian church, and worse, the polarization that exists not just in our society, but exists of the church with the surrounding society. I, I, I hope, I hope that what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus is trying to do here can sink deeply into our head and into our hearts this morning. I, I hope that first of all, we can see that what Jesus is doing is elevating love as the greatest commandment of all to be obeyed. That, that, that's a, a total recategorizing of how many of us understand faith. Many of us understand faith as, you know, obeying certain commandments of God and, you know, trying to get those right. And we call that seeking the truth. Where love comes in, love is like an emotion. It's like a feeling, or it might even be the way in which we live out that truth. But so often our faith pits truth against love and love against truth. Truth is what our head tries to seek in trying to believe the right things. And love is what our heart tells us, you know, we should do in the way that we, that we treat people. That's not the framework that Jesus is building here. Jesus is building, you know, a, a set of values and instructions and commandments from God of which the primary commandments to be obeyed are to love God and to love people. The primary commandment is to love. Love is not a feeling. It's a commandment to be obeyed. And when we can understand that, then I think we can make sense of how the New Testament writers after Jesus understood a life of faith and understood it through the lens of the primary commandment of love. That's what the Apostle Paul means in Galatians 5 when he says that the only thing that counts in following Jesus is that faith expresses itself through love. All that matters is that love is allowed to be primary, that love can be the greatest commandment. The flip side is also true, that you can be doing all kinds of stuff and no stuff and, and you know, think that you're getting stuff right. But if you lack love, 1 Corinthians 13 says you can know everything about everything. But Paul says, if I didn't love others, what good would it do? Right? Everything flows out of that primary commandment to love. Nothing can flow out of anything outside of that primary commandment to love because Jesus has revolutionized and reframed how people in his day, and I believe how people in our day, understand what a life of uh, faith is intended to include. 
It's primarily about following the commandment of the, the greatest commandment, the law of love, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Secondly, I hope that we can not only appreciate that Jesus is reframing love as a commandment to be obeyed, if not the greatest of all. I hope that we can understand why he's doing that, what purpose that ultimately serves. Jesus was being tested by people to be divided, and he lifts up the laws of love so that people will be unified. And I hope that we can appreciate how much that matters to him. Shortly before Jesus gave up his life for the sin of you and me, he prayed a prayer to God. And I don't know what you'd pray if you knew that you had finite breaths on earth left. But Jesus' final prayer is recorded uh, in another biographical account written by a guy named John. And it says in John 17, Jesus says, I pray that my followers will all be one. Just as you, God, and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, may they, my, my followers, be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. Here, Jesus is doing a couple significant things. First, first of all, in this one prayer, he's not praying for himself. He's praying for his would-be followers. Secondly, he's not just praying that they would get it right and that they, they would have right belief and right orthodoxy. What he's praying for is that we would be unified. And the reason he prays for his followers to be unified, as he describes in John 17, is so that the watching world will know the most and best about what God is like. The best shot that the watching world has at seeing and understanding and making sense of who God is and how he wants to work in the world is by seeing the oneness of his followers, regardless of the camp we find ourselves in. That's the significant point here that Matthew is making through Jesus. That Jesus' intent is not to subdivide people into camps. And if you've ever felt like what it means to get it right is to have right belief and to get it right is to organize yourself and other people around that same belief and to kind of exclude or to segregate yourself from people who believe different because they, you know, if you're getting it right, they're obviously getting it wrong and to create that subdivision. Anything that creates disunity, Jesus says, is getting it wrong. To get it right is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And in elevating those commandments as the greatest, we become unified in love in that above all else, regardless of the camp that we find ourselves in. Gang, I feel like this applies so relevantly to us today, even more relevantly perhaps than in Jesus' day. Because if we're honest with ourselves in the church, there are camps. There are camps. You might not even be you know, from a church background. You might be new to, to this conversation today, but you know, even if you're brand new, you know that in the church, there are camps. There are camps in you know, how you're to read the Bible. You know, are you to read it literally and take it at face value or are you to apply interpretive strategies? Should you value the New Testament more than the old or should you disproportionately value the literal words that Jesus said, the, the, the ones that are, in, you know, in red letters in, in most Bibles? There are camps. There are camps based on how people interpret the Bible. There are camps on, you know, creation and evolution and, you know, how things started and how the world was made. 
there are camps of the other end on the end times and how that's all going to shake down and what eternity's like and, you know, how heaven works and hell and whether they're even real. There are camps. There are camps about all kinds of issues in a life of faith. There are camps about, you know, what women can do in the church. Can women lead and do all the same things as men? Can women serve in certain roles, but not in leadership roles? Or, you know, are women supposed to stay silent and, and you know, as they're staying silent to, to keep their head covered? Okay, there are camps. There are camps on how to understand baptism. Is baptism for babies? Is it for adults? Is it for believers? Does it involve water? If it does, does it involve sprinkling or full immersion? Or only is it to be done through the work of the Holy Spirit? There are camps. There are camps on how marriage is understood. Is marriage to be, you know, for one man and one woman? Or does it allow for, you know, a multitude of people in the relationship? And if it's only two people, can those people be of the same gender? Appreciate, gang, there are camps. And, you know, those might seem like the more hotly contested kinds of camps. There are way more camps than just that. There are camps around music styles and dress codes and whether you're supposed to bring your Bible to church and how your church is governed and what programs you offer and, you know, how you do membership and, you know, camps about everything, really, except whether the Maple Leafs are Canada's team. I don't think that, oh, yeah, there are camps about that, too. There are camps about pretty much Everything in our day and age are there, aren't there? Probably more camps today than in Jesus' day. And I say that because a while back, I, I, I preached a message on denominations, on the subcategories of the Christian church that existed and why and where they come from and whatever. And back in that day, I, I reported that uh, there were apparently 20,600 Christian denominations. This is about a decade ago when I gave that talk. You search the same information today. You know how many Christian denominations are reported around the world? 33,000. Nearing double the number of subdivisions around groups of people that can't be around any other people or, uh, except for people who believe exactly the same things as them because their ultimate goal is to get it right. And if you're sitting there, you know, having had no association with church whatsoever and have not understood the last five minutes of what I've been describing, because none of this to you makes sense, there's probably a reason for that. Because I don't think much of this is supposed to make sense. Especially when you think about the Jesus who responded to the religious expert in his day, instead of falling into his trap and allowing his people to be divided, he gave an answer that unified people around love for God and love for people, and that's it. To answer his one prayer for unity. The question is, in our day and age, how can we reverse that trend? You know, maybe we're not influencing denominations these days, but just in our own lives. How can we live in a way that reverses that trend and builds the kind of oneness and unity and love rather than the dividedness around our camps? I think Matthew recording uh, Jesus' interactions in Matthew chapter 22 provides us uh, with four steps that we can take today. The first one I've already talked about, that is to view love as a commandment. View love as a commandment, something to be obeyed, not just something you feel. Romans 13 says, owe nothing to anyone except for your obligation to love one another. If you love your neighbor, you will fulfill all the requirements of God's law. I, I love that language because 
It talks about the obligation to love. And I want us to, to view love not as a feeling that we can feel that kind of comes and goes, but as an obligation of obedience under God because of the status that Jesus has placed the great commandment uh, under. Secondly, I would say, you know, if we want to do what God says in this regard to, to prioritize love as the most important commandment, don't just view it as a commandment to be obeyed, but, but you know, understand it in its right place. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, to let love be our highest goal. And whatever we might be tempted to hold as the deal-breaking theological issue in our lives, to make sure that loving God and loving people and being unified in love trumps that propensity to make that issue break the deal. If we can prioritize love as the most important commandment, then I think we can love people in a way that, number three, can let them have space for their camp. That, that can actually create space under this unifying banner of loving God and loving people to allow differences of interpretation and differences of opinion, even around things that matter a lot to us. Romans 14, I love this paraphrase in the message translation. It says, welcome with open arms, fellow believers who don't see things the way you do and don't jump all over them every time they do or say something you don't agree with. What a great word for our day and age to out of the primacy of love for God and people and being unified around that, allowing people that kind of space to not just tolerate them, but to embrace them in that way. And then to not just sort of put up with them, but as we said, number four, to actively build unity and love instead of negatively building division of camps. Romans 15, five says this, may God who gives this patience and encouragement help you live in complete harmony with each other as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love this passage because it describes the vision of the church as living in harmony, in harmony. Harmony by definition requires the differentiation of notes, requires different people with different backgrounds, different cultures, and different perspectives on life and faith that can be unified together in the person of Jesus and in his great commandments to love God and love people unified in his love. That's the life that Jesus is inviting us into. And I feel like for us, gang, this is as revolutionary a, a change in how we understand life and faith as it would have been for Jesus' hearers and to the religious leaders that Jesus was responding to, recorded in Matthew chapter 22. You know, around here in the past couple of years, we've been sort of feeling this, sensing this from God that, that with all of the division across the Christian church and the growing polarization of the Christian church with the watching world, that something's got to change and change fast. And so we've been introducing this idea that we haven't had better language for, it, but we've called it love beyond belief. Love beyond belief, meaning a superseding way to relate to people in love that can override the differences in belief that doesn't depend on sharing the same beliefs, even about things that matter to us about life and faith as a precondition to be in that kind of relationship. It literally is an unconditionally loving relationship. 
And we've sensed God leading in that, in that direction. And, you know, we get into conversations with people all the time about, you know, well, then that means that beliefs don't matter. And, if, you know, we're just trying to be trendy with the culture. And, you know, we're trying to be wishy-washy on theology and things like that. And you got to know our hearts that that, that hasn't been our, our sense from God at all. I feel what, what, what Matthew 22 puts language to, at least for me, is that this idea of love beyond belief, this idea of the primacy of love, galvanizing us in unity around it, above all other camps and schools of thought and areas and opportunities for distinction, is not just a trendy thing to do. This is a commandment, if not the declared greatest commandment by Jesus himself, our Lord, our Savior, our forgiver, our leader, that we want to be obedient to. And this morning, I want to invite you to respond in that kind of obedience along with us as a leadership, as a church together. I'm going to invite the band up and uh, they're going to close with a final song. And uh, the final song I'm hoping is kind of a, a rallying point for us as a church community. We don't do uh, altar call style endings too often around here, but I would feel like when Jesus says something is the greatest commandment of all, that it kind of merits a, a bit more significant response. And so what I'm hoping is that we can kind of stand in response to affirm to affirm that we're tracking with what Jesus is saying that Matthew is, is recording in Matthew chapter 22. And, and as the band plays, they're going to play through a couple choruses, or, or, or a couple verses rather. And then when they get to the chorus, the chorus says this. It says, the time is now. Come church, arise. Love with his hands. See with his eyes. Bind it around you. Never let it leave you. And they will know us by his love. It says the time is now. Come church arise. And when they get to that point. You'll be able to feel it when the band's playing it. When they get to that point in the chorus. I want to invite you. If you're in the place where you can get your head around the reorganized version of faith that Jesus is introducing here in Matthew 22, and get your heart around the kind of unifying, galvanizing effect that the primacy of a love for God and people could have in our lives and in our midst. If you're tracking with that and want that to be true of your life, then the time is now. Come church, arise. If you're not part of our church, if you're just visiting or you're new to faith and you're not even sure, but this is making sense for you, then I'd encourage you to, to rise and stand at that point as well. If you've got mobility issues, you know, we understand not everyone can stand. You know, try to make a gesture or something as if you were indicating that you want to stand. But here's the thing. If you're still in a place where for some reason there is deal-breaking level theological issues for you that keep you apart from other people and that would subdivide you from further people if other people were to, you know, diverge in their opinion from you, if you're still in that kind of place, then have the integrity to not stand yet. And just let this song wash over you. I don't want you to stand because it's popular. I don't want you to stand in guilt. And I certainly don't want you to sit in shame. I just want us to be honest with where we're at. And as a community across our locations, if we're not there, that's okay. People who are standing certainly aren't going to judge you because they're trying to rise above that in a love for God and love for people, unifying, galvanizing place. 
You know, they're, they're rising above the camps that we, we might have. But if we still have camps among us that would divide us further, then let's try to let God do that business in us in these moments. But for those of us who could allow our head and heart to be revolutionized by God in a way that maybe for the first time is introducing us to a kind of faith that we've never totally understood. One where love is a commandment to be obeyed. One where love is the primary commandment above all else to unify and galvanize us around it in a way that can give people the space to have their camps and can cultivate a unity in diversity that creates harmony. Whereas one voice, we can lift up praise and worship to Christ. Well, then the time is now. Come, church, arise. Let's pray together. God, I pray that on a morning where uh, we are looking at nothing less than what you declared as the greatest commandment of all, that we would allow the weight of what you taught and the weight of why you taught what you taught to sink deep into our hearts. God, help us not to fall into the trap of subdividing and creating factions and you know, other divisions because of camps. Help us to realize that getting it right you know, doesn't divide in that way. That unifying even in differences around love for you and love for people is what it ultimately means to get it right. And help us, God, to confess where we haven't done that and to commit to doing that more. Make us the kind of church, God, that can love beyond belief. Make us the kind of church that can give a clear and compelling picture of what you're like to the watching world so that they'll know us by our love and help us in these moments now by your spirit only to come to life, to come and arise so that we can express your incredible love to a world so divided, so polarized, who desperately needs it. Make us those people, please, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.